Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Book of Acts, chapter 6. Yes, we are departing from Genesis this morning. Acts chapter 6 is our text. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We do have Bibles for you. There's paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. So you can grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love that Bible to be our gift to you. So please feel free to take that home with you if you'd like. But before you take it home, open it up right now and turn to page 533 in the paperback Bibles. Again, our text is Acts 6. I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Today is kind of a unique Sunday, one of the reasons that we're departing from uh, the Genesis series here briefly, because today we are installing new officers Um, as leaders of the church, two deacons and one elder. And so it seemed appropriate to spend some time thinking about this topic of of church leadership. Uh, Sometimes it's called church polity or or church government. Uh, Admittedly, not the most gripping and uh, captivating topic, but uh, the scriptures do speak to it. And in fact, it's a very important topic uh, generally speaking, as the leaders go, so goes the church, and very often churches are um, very negatively harmed through poor leadership and poor leadership structures. And uh, I want to show you a, a book I'm trying to work my way through. It's called uh, The Church of Christ by James Bannerman, and it's about a thousand pages long, <laughs> a thousand page book on church polity. So uh, I share that with you not to impress you but to show you that there is a lot to be said about this topic and it could be that maybe you haven't even really thought about this topic. Um, For some of you I know this will be review. I've preached on this topic before but uh, again I think it's important that we consider this. Um, We've all been affected by leaders right? I mean some of us have been under the leadership of good leaders and we've been blessed by that. We've been inspired. We've been cared for. We feel like perhaps something valuable has been accomplished because of the leadership we've been under, and others of us have been under poor leadership, and we've felt maybe unappreciated or micromanaged or or even abused. And so leadership is a very important thing for us to consider um, here in the Church of Jesus Christ. And so, again, the end of this sermon, we're going to be installing these two men, uh, or three men, who I believe, we believe as a congregation, have been called to serve us here at New Life. And so let's spend some time considering this topic. We're going to be looking at the book of Acts, as I mentioned, chapter 6. Maybe you know the book of Acts. The book of Acts is basically kind of a history of the early church. So uh, Jesus has come and he's lived his sinless life and gone to the cross and has laid down his life there and is resurrected from the dead. That's described for us in the four Gospels. And uh, now that Jesus is resurrected, he has called his apostles and disciples to himself, and the church is growing. And so Acts picks up where the Gospels left off, and we're seeing the church grow through these early chapters of Acts. We've seen remarkable things happen. Thousands and thousands of people added to the numbers of the church, thousands being baptized, things are going great, and then there's a problem. And if you've been in the church for any time at all, you know that problems often arise. And when problems arise, we've got to figure out how to deal with the problems. 
And that's what's happening here in Acts 6. There's a very kind of routine, boots-on-the-ground difficulty, and some decisions have to be made about how to deal with it. And so we're going to read Acts 6, 1 through 7. If you are able to stand, please do that. And I'll read this passage to us now. Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Holy Spirit, we call on you, asking you, Lord, open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful truths in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. All right, so a problem develops. So what's the problem? Well, uh, we see it described here in verse 1. A complaint arises among the Hellenists. Hellenists is a a way of describing Greek-speaking Jews in the church. And their complaint comes against the Hebrews, against the Jews, because the, um, the widows among the Hellenists were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So there's a, a regular distribution of food going on normally. But in this case, these widows were overlooked. And so a decision now has to be made. How do we deal with this problem? And so the 12 disciples who have been giving themselves to prayer and to preaching the word of God, it says in verse 2, are concerned about this issue and they know it's an important issue and they want the issue to be dealt with, but they also realize that if they begin taking up problems like this, waiting on people who are needing the daily distribution of food, that it's going to take them away from their primary task, which is prayer and the ministry of the word. So uh, they come up with a solution, and they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set aside a certain group of people whose primary responsibility will be to take up Uh, the responsibility of meeting the needs of these widows so that we, the disciples, can continue to devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. And so what we're seeing here is the beginning of the organization of the church. We're seeing that because of a particular need, decisions are needing to be made about Different responsibilities given to different people. And so we're seeing organization now is beginning to develop. And so the solution is we'll find seven people, according to verse 3, seven men, and we'll set them apart. And these seven men will then be responsible for getting food to these widows who are being overlooked. They'll be set apart 
And if you look at the uh, verse 6, they set uh, these people before the apostles. They prayed and they laid their hands on them. We're going to lay hands on uh, the elders and elder and deacons here in just a little while. So that tells us that this is an, an official. It seems like it's an ordination. It seems like there's a specific kind of office that's being set up here for these individuals responsible for giving the food to these widows. So there's two groups here. Now, the word elder and deacon is not used here. But I believe that that's what's happening here. This is the beginning of these two offices being set up, being separated, distinct from each other for the service of the church. So that's my first point. I want us to consider this. Um, the organization of the church. Here as the church is growing, we see that there is a need for organization. And the primary way the church is organized is setting up these two groups of leaders, elders and deacons. Again, those words not listed here in Acts, but as the New Testament continues, you begin to see those words show up over and over again, elders and deacons. So here's Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, so he's writing to the congregation. That's the saints in Christ Jesus. Along with, however, the overseers and deacons. Now, the word overseers is used interchangeably with elders. When you see that word overseers, you should read elders. When you see elders, they're overseers. They're, they're used interchangeably. Um, makes it a little confusing, I know, but it's just the way under God's inspiration of the Spirit the New Testament speaks. So just so you know that I'm not making this up, let me show you a couple of examples. Overseers, elders, they mean the same thing. Acts chapter 20 it says, now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. He's about ready to say farewell to them. And then he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The elders have been made overseers. They're referring to the same group to care for the church of God. Uh, if we go to the book of Titus, we see something very similar. Chapter 1. Paul, again, writing to Timothy, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town for an overseer. Now he's going on to describe the qualifications for an elder, but he calls them overseers instead of elders. So these two terms are used interchangeably. It should be understood that way. You're going to see that this comes up more as we get into this topic. So here's another example of where these two offices are mentioned. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that means elder, he desires a noble task, therefore an overseer must be. And then he goes on, he describes what an elder must be like. And then in verse 8, deacons are referenced. Deacons, likewise, must be. And then a description is given for what deacons are like. And so in 1 Timothy 3, you've got these two groups, elders and deacons. That's it, just those two. And then Paul goes on, 1 Timothy 3.15, the very end of that chapter, and he says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. So what Paul is saying here is, I'm giving you descriptions for what the elders and deacons are like, and that's how the church ought to be organized. These two offices. We don't have any indication here in the New Testament that it's up to some pope 
to tell everybody what to do, nor is it up to any kind of individual single bishop to tell churches what to do, nor is it up to the congregation just by itself to come together and as an entire group make every single decision that comes before the church. That's not the way the New Testament presents it to us. The church is organized into elders and deacons. Now, why isn't every church organized that way? And I don't know if I can answer that question. Um, it, it seems pretty clear to me that this is the way the New Testament presents it. And I think in the early church, in the book of Acts anyway, you certainly see this, elders and deacons set up. But as the centuries went on, um, the church seemed to get away from that. There's a guy named Timothy Whitner wrote a book called The Shepherd Leader where he has a chapter where he talks about the history of church government and how this has kind of changed over the centuries. And he says that in the second century, a gradual shift began that was to have dramatic ramifications on the organization of the church. Instead of the local church being overseen by a plurality of elders with the assistance of deacons, the seeds of hierarchical practice were planted, that is, individuals that had increasingly high ranks. In the third century, authority increasingly shifted them from the plurality of elders to one bishop. And so then in many churches, it was a bishop, it was an individual who was leading, ruling over the church. It wasn't until the Reformation, actually, that what the New Testament is teaching us was, was recovered and this kind of elder-deacon dual office was again implemented into the church. Point here that I'm trying to make, friends, is that the, the Bible does give us direction for how this is supposed to work. Uh, you know, maybe the Bible isn't expressly clear as we would like it to be, but as the New Testament presents the development of the church, there are these two offices, elder and deacon. Now, an another reason I'm presenting this to you is because I know for a lot of people that there's an objection, and I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard somebody say that I love Jesus, but I don't like institutional organized religion. I hear that all the time. I have a relationship with God. I know Jesus is my savior. It's me and Jesus, but institutional religion, organized religion, I don't want to have any part of that. Well, the scriptures speak to the organization of the church. And we would not take that attitude into any number of other aspects of our lives. You wouldn't say, for instance, I love money, but I'm against organized financial institutions. <laughs> I don't want my bank to be organized. I just want it to be a free-flowing thing where anybody just does whatever they want with my money. You know, you're not going to say that. If you perceive that your bank is disorganized, you're probably taking your money elsewhere, and rightly so. To the degree that something is important, we want to know that it's organized. And the scriptures are giving us directions on how this should be. And it pretty comes down to something pretty simple. Congregation is led by elders and deacons. Now, can there be too much organization in the church? Can there be too much structure in the church? And the answer is yes, that absolutely can happen. There are occasions when churches have so much policy and so many committees and so much structure that ministry itself gets hindered and the Holy Spirit gets, gets quenched. That can happen, and we want to beware of that. 
But the fact that that can happen or has happened doesn't mean that we reject all expressions of organization or structure in the church. A good example of how this should work is by thinking of a trellis and a vine. Uh, there's a, a book written by that title that talks about this very topic, a trellis. The trellis is the structure, the, 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 the wood structure there in the back. And the vine is the greenery you see there at the bottom of the trellis. So the trellis is providing structure for the vine. The trellis is not alive, the vine is. But in order for the vine to flourish, it needs a trellis. Some churches are all trellis and no vine. There's a lot of structure, there's a lot of organization, there's a lot of policy, but the place is dead. The spirit is not working, there's no vine, there's nothing living. It's a dead church, it's got organization, but but no life. But there are other churches that are all vine. I mean, they're alive. The spirits at work, great, but there's no trellis. And so everything is chaos and out of control. There's no accountability. There's no direction. Uh, I think what the New Testament would tell us is that both extremes should be avoided. We need a trellis and a vine. But here at New Life, one of the ways we try to communicate that we are interested in the vine more than the trellis is by telling you about our core values. And we bring these up to you every single Sunday so that you can know that these are the things we really value. These are the things that, that this is our heartbeat, the core values of the church. Adoration, worshiping God, that's what we're about. The God who created us, the God who has had mercy on us, the God who has redeemed us, the God who has sent his son for us and brought us into relationship with him. He created us as worshipers. We're redeemed as worshipers. That's why we exist to worship him. And we never want any structure to get in the way of the worship, the spirit-led worship of the church. We value that. But we also value belonging. We want this to be a place where friendships are made, where fellowship happens, where we connect with one another, where our loneliness can be alleviated, where we have a safe place where we can share with others and be held accountable to godly living by our brothers and sisters. Belonging. We want this to be a place where there is compassion expressed, where we are showing mercy on the needy, both in our congregation and in our community. And we want this to be a place where discipleship happens, where you are trained and instructed and taught and molded and shaped into what it is to be a true follower of Jesus in this world. And we also want this to be a place where evangelism flourishes, where we're not ashamed of the gospel, but we tell people about Jesus and we invite them to come to church and we support missionaries and we send them all over the world to spread the gospel. And we plant churches in central Indiana so that other gospel-believing congregations can be started and can flourish and also make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what drives us. We don't want any amount of structure to get in the way of any of these things. But in order for these things to work well, there's got to be some structure. And the scriptures tell us that it starts with the setting apart of some men as elders and some men as deacons to lead the church. So the church should be organized. That's the first thing. But secondly, secondly let's consider the leaders of the church. What should the leaders be like? What kind of, of people should assume the roles of elder and deacon. So we're going to 
Go back to 1 Timothy 3. I was referring to that passage just a little while ago, but 1 Timothy 3 gives us a detailed description of what elders and deacons should be like. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3, here's a description of the elder, referred to as an overseer, again. The overseer, the elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, but violent, not violent, not but violent, strike that from the record, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So I'm not going to unpack this whole thing this morning, but I want to draw attention to uh, that phrase kind of in the middle of the paragraph, he must not be a recent convert. So that is, he, it's, an elder is not someone who came to faith last week. You know, he needs some time to, to grow and, and mature. But the implication there, though, is that he needs to be a convert, just not a recent convert. In other words, an elder needs to be somebody who has been converted to Christianity. That is, someone who has put his faith in Jesus Christ, someone who has let the past behind and is moving forward as a new creature in Christ, born again by God's Spirit. A true convert to Christianity. Not just someone who's gifted and skilled, but somebody who believes and loves the gospel. That, that's the first thing to consider. And I know maybe it goes without saying, but the fact that we don't say it maybe causes it to fall away from our main consideration. What does this guy understand about the gospel? That's the first thing that ought to be considered when you think about who should serve as an elder in a church. Well, then we have qualifications for deacons. 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 12. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. So again, let me point out one thing about this. There is a difference in the qualification of elders and deacons. You'll notice a lot of similarities here, but one of the differences is that um, elders are required to be able to teach, able to teach. It doesn't say they have to be fantastic teachers, but able to teach. But that's not said for deacons. Deacons are not responsible to be teachers necessarily. Most of their work is done kind of behind the scenes. But nonetheless, it does say for deacons, they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, they also should be Christians. They should hold to the faith. They should believe in the gospel. They should be men who know that they are sinners who have nothing in themselves that would merit themselves before God, who are at the feet of the mercy of God and the cross of Jesus Christ and trust in Jesus' work alone for their salvation. Men who love the gospel and hold to the mystery of the faith. The most important thing when you're considering who might be a deacon. So, 
What else do we learn here about this, uh, from this passage about who should be elders and deacons? One thing I want you to notice here, things not said in this description. There's nothing here regarding elders and deacons about people being ambitious or brilliant or intelligent or educated or having some degree or having some amount of money that they've made or having an outgoing personality or being funny or being charming or being clever. doesn't say anything about that. Those are not qualifications for an elder or a deacon. Instead, everything listed in this description are all character issues. They're all about godliness. We're not talking about perfect men. I know sometimes we can read this and think, well, who in the world could ever qualify? Well, we're not talking about perfection here. All elders and deacons at this church and every other church should know how far short we fall of the glory God, but there should be a pattern of godliness in the officers and leaders of the church. They should exhibit a measure of self-control. They shouldn't be greedy, living only for financial gain. Their households, even with the deficiencies that exist there, should be managed well, should be generally speaking in order. These are people who are dignified. They're not quarrelsome, they're not looking to argue, they're not at odds with other people. There's really nothing that extraordinary, quite frankly, about this. We're not asking for Augustine or John Calvin here or John Piper or Tim Keller. You don't have to be at that level to be an elder or a deacon. These are fairly ordinary um, requirements. Blaise Pascal says this, the virtue of a man ought to be measured not by his extraordinary exertions, but by his everyday conduct. What are they like every day going through the routine of their lives? So how is it that these leaders of the church, how is it that we get elders and deacons in the church? And the answer to that question is that it's up to you. It's up to you, the congregation at New Life Presbyterian Church. It's up to the members of this church. If you want to go back with me to Acts chapter, chapter 6, if you still have that open, let me point something out to you here. Notice what it says in verse 3. Here the disciples are, are speaking, and the need has arisen for this group to be set aside to take care of the widows overlooked in the distribution of food. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. So the disciples, the leaders of the church at this point could have said, hey, look, we're the ones who are the apostles. We'll come in. We'll tell you what to do. We'll tell you who to choose. But they don't do that. They say to the people, no, you choose your own people. Pick out from among you the gathering. And so verse 5, and what they said, please, the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen. It's the congregation that chooses its leaders. But then notice back in verse 3, the qualifications considered. Men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. Character issues again. Godliness issues. But it's up to the congregation to make that choice and so it's up to you to make the choice of who you want to serve as elders and deacons in this church and so we have a nomination period that is now open if you were at the annual meeting you, you know about this our annual meeting was this past Monday night and uh, between now and March 14th we are asking you members of the church to consider who you might nominate to serve as elder or deacon, elders or deacons uh, in this church. There's a nomination form. It's on the Welcome Center if you don't have one already. 
Um, we just ask you to pray about this. First of all, ask the Lord who might he bring to your mind that you might nominate, and then ask that person if he would give you permission to nominate him, and then write his name on that nomination form, write down your name, give a short reason why, and give it to Brian, Pastor Brian, or me, or drop it in the, the, the brown box there at the welcome team, and, and the elders will take that up and, and take it from there. But we're looking to you now to nominate elders and deacons. So j just to be clear, let, let me just to make this even more practical, I mean, here's some things that should be low priority on your list as you think about who you might nominate. Someone who's a good friend of yours, maybe qualified, but just the fact that they're your friend and you like them a lot doesn't mean that they're qualified. Someone who's charming, somebody who's funny, doesn't necessarily make them qualified. Somebody who just needs to get involved in the church. You just wish they were more involved bad reason to nominate someone for elder or deacon. That person needs to get involved in other ways before assuming an office like this. Maybe the person you're thinking of is a leader in the community. Maybe he's the mayor of the city. Quite frankly, we don't care. We, we don't care what kind of leadership position this person has at their company or in politics in the community. That doesn't mean they're not qualified, maybe they are, but the fact that they're a leader in the community doesn't make them qualified. It's the character issues that the scriptures are telling us about here in 1 Timothy 3 that should be the high priority. So what are you thinking of? You're just thinking of people who love the gospel, people who are humble, people who are wise, steady, faithful, people who set an example, people who are already serving in some way. It's a good thing to look for. Are they already doing something, even a small amount of service to the church? That's a very good sign. Let's say you see somebody and they're noticing, you know, that drinking fountain doesn't work. That needs to be fixed. I'll do it. That could be the heart of a deacon right there. Or maybe he says, you know, I know this family in the church and they just lost their job and they just don't have any money. They don't know how they're going to pay their bills. Who's helping them? How can we help them? That person might be a deacon. That's a good thing to notice. How about a, maybe there's a person that, that you have sought out for counsel. Maybe you had some marriage trouble and you went to this person and, and, and this guy gave you some really good counsel and good advice. That might be an elder. You've just been shepherded by somebody. Maybe this person you know of, they, they, just, they, they love the scriptures, they talk about the scriptures, they share with you what they've learned in the Bible, they're thinking about theological things. That also might be the heart of an elder. Doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified, but that's a good hint. Those are the kinds of things to look for. So it's true, friends, we need deacons and elders here. We do. And so I encourage you to think carefully and prayerfully about this. But let me also say, do not force a nomination. That is, don't make a nomination just to say that you did. <laughs> um, I, I would rather have smaller groups of elders and deacons of, that are consist of quality, excuse me, qualified men rather than groups of elders and deacons that are large but consist of unqualified people. Smaller groups of qualified people are better. So we don't have to have a lot of people, but we do need help. So don't force a nomination. If you don't make a nomination, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I do ask you to carefully consider who the Lord might be bringing to your mind as an elder or a deacon. Okay, one last thing, the head of the church. Who is the head of the church? Um, because...
Maybe one thing you've noticed here is that whenever the scriptures refer to elders, they always refer to them in the plural. It's always elders. It's always more than one. The scriptures never call one person to lead the church. Churches should be led by teams, teams of elders and deacons. So you might ask, well, if you have a team, who makes the final decision? Who gets the last say? And the answer is, Jesus does. <laughs> Jesus gets the last say because ultimately Jesus is the one who is the head of the church. Here's Colossians 1. All things were created through him and for him, and he, that is Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Yeah, I know we don't see Jesus right now before us, but he is resurrected from the dead at the right hand of the Father, reigning over the universe and leading his church through his appointed means of elders and deacons that his words his word is indicating to us. So th that indicates three quick things here. Jesus is the head of the church. What that means is that the authority of church leaders is always a derived authority. It's delegated by Jesus to us. The authority we have has nothing to do with who we necessarily are in our persons. There's nothing inherent in us. It's something that Jesus has given to us, and therefore we're accountable to him ultimately and how we use our authority. There's something very humbling about that. It's not because we're great people. <laughs> it's because Jesus has set up his church in a particular way and has chosen to delegate that authority to certain individuals to lead the church. So it's derived, but it's also designed to serve. The authority that elders and deacons have in a church is not given to them so that we can get you to serve us. It's so that we can serve you. Because Jesus is the head of the church. And what did Jesus say? He said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And so we want to serve in the way that Jesus has served us. And all elders and deacons should assume that role as servants. And then the last thing we see is that all authority in the church is directed by God's word. The Bible is the final authority. Our responsibility as elders and deacons is to proclaim that word to you to teach that word to you, to call you to submission to that word. But we are not called upon to give you our personal views necessarily, certainly not our political views. That's not where our authority comes from. We have personal and political views, but that's not where our authority comes from. It comes from the scriptures. And all of us live under the authority of God's word. And so what this means, if I make one final point here about the head of the church, while it's true that you as a congregation select the elders and deacons that you want to lead the church, that is true. But after that happens, and when elders and deacons are in place and they begin serving this church, friends, their ultimate accountability is not to you, but to Jesus, who is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church, not the congregation. You have input by choosing who you want to serve, but ultimately, we are accountable to Jesus. And so a guy named Guy Waters says it this way, officers do not owe their loyalty to the will of the people. They are not a committee of the congregation bound to do its will. Church officers rather owe their loyalty to the will of Christ. Even if the approval of Jesus is all he has, the approval of Jesus is all he needs to be a faithful officer 
the church. Now that doesn't mean that we disregard what the congregation desires and is concerned about. It doesn't mean we don't listen. We, we, we do, but there are some times we have to make decisions maybe that is contrary to what the congregation desires if we believe it's what Jesus is calling us to do. And that's the way the scriptures, I believe, have set it up because Jesus is the head of the church. Okay. Well, let me ask our elected new officers to come forward, please. Chris Potts, Brandon Dykstra, Brad Kendall. I'm going to ask the members of the New Life Session also to come forward. Guys, why don't you come up and stand just right here to the left of the pulpit. I'm going to move Stephanie's music right over here. You guys can stand right here. Face the congregation, please. <clears throat> we have Pastor Brian and David Lowry here. Bob Darby and Kurt Whitman are uh, not with us this morning. Um, so I'm going to have these guys. Yeah, it's a little awkward with the instruments, but okay. Um, so this is Chris Potts. This is Brandon Dykstra, and this is Brad Kendall. So again, these three guys were elected to these offices Monday night at our annual meeting, Chris and Brad to the office of deacon, and Brandon to the office of elder. And so they were nominated during the nomination period that happened at this time last year in 2020. They accepted those nominations, and then they completed a training course, about a seven, eight-month training course here, at the church and then were approved by the session and their names were put on the ballot and they were elected by you the congregation this past Monday night. So uh, Brad and Chris are going to be joining Zach Whitman as an elder and there's uh, as a deacon it's Zach in the booth right there. Zach if you want to raise your hand again. Yep that's Zach. So we have three ordained deacons now and uh, <coughs> Brandon will be joining Pastor Brian, Kurt Whitman, Bob Darby, David Lowry and myself as elders, and so that makes six men serving in that office, the office of elder. And so we're very thankful um, to God for sending you guys to us. We're very thankful for your willingness to serve in the church and to make the sacrifices that are going to be necessary to assume this office. And so it's appropriate that we mention the wives of these men also because if their husbands are sacrificing, that means that they're sacrificing as well. So uh, Allie is married to Brad, Dallas married to Chris, and Brianna married to Brandon. And so um, thank you to those women for their sacrifice as well and for your support of your husbands as they assume this office and respond to God's call to them to serve this church. So... In accordance then with our book of church order, BCO, this is the kind of book that regulates how we do things here at this church and this denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. These men are going to now take vows to you. I got six questions for them. And uh, guys, after each question, you can just answer, I do. And then members of New Life, I'm going to ask you one question so you can make a vow to them. Okay? So... My brothers, six questions. First of all, do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as originally given to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church 
as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, you will on your own initiative make known to the elders of this church the change which has taken place in your views since the assumption of this ordination vow this morning? Do you <clears throat> approve of the form of government and discipline of the Presbyterian Church in America in conformity with the general principles of biblical polity? Do you accept the office of ruling elder or deacon in this church and promise faithfully to perform all the duties thereof and to endeavor by the grace of God to adorn the profession of the gospel in your life and to set a worthy example before the church of which God has made you an officer? Do you promise subjection to your brethren in the Lord? And then lastly, do you promise to strive for the purity, peace, unity, and edification of the church? Okay, very good. Thank you, men. To you who are members of this congregation, I ask you this. Do you, the members of New Life Presbyterian Church, acknowledge and receive these brothers as ruling elder and deacons? And do you promise to yield to them all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which their office entitles them? If so, say we do. Um, I've asked Pastor Brian to pray for you guys, but let me have you kneel, um, if you would, if you're able. I think you're all able. <laughs> and the elders will lay hands on you, and Brian will pray. Our Father in heaven, we uh, want to thank you for your faithfulness, because you've promised to build your church, and you are doing that by your mercy and by your grace, rescuing sinners by the redeeming work of Jesus, our Savior and our King. And so first off, Father, uh, we would thank you for loving these men and for adopting them as your sons. And may this reality continue to anchor them and ground them in their labors here in our midst. Uh, may they not be weighed down thinking that your affection and love and acceptance for them is based upon their fruitfulness or their performance in these offices in any way or even as a believer, but they uh, are recipients of your affection and your unwavering love because of the work of Jesus on their behalf that makes them pure and perfectly righteous before you and nothing can revoke their adoption. And so they, may they serve out of that assurance, assurance and that strength uh, we also want to thank you for their servants' hearts. We pray that you would fill them with your spirit of wisdom and of truth and of strength for the work that is before them. We pray that you would equip them and also continue to grow their gifts as they um, gain experience in the exercise of these offices, as they continue to grow in maturity alongside us. Uh, we thank you ahead of time for their sacrifice of time, their sacrifice of energy, and for their love for this congregation. Um, as Pastor Bob mentioned, we do want to pray for their families. We pray for Chris's wife, Dallas, and his children, Avery and Arlie and Ellis. 
We pray for Brandon's wife, Brianna, and his young son, Asher. We pray for Brad's wife, Allie, and their children, Zeke and Asa. We thank you for the sacrifices that these women are making and these children are making, um, allowing their husbands to serve the church in this way. So we thank you for the service of their families uh, and the sacrifice of time and energy that they are giving in giving their husbands and the fathers of their children to the service of the church. But we also pray for Chris and Brandon and Brad that they would be sensitive to their importance, uh, to the important role and calling they have to continue to minister well to their families, seeing that one of the qualifications is to manage their own households well. May they not neglect this responsibility, but they may, may they continue to love and cherish and support and nurture and invest their time and their hearts into their marriages and in their roles as fathers. And so we commit their families to you as well. Help us to love their families um, as well. And let us not forget that uh, as each of these men are called to serve in their office, they are also um, mere men who are in need of the ongoing service of the congregation. And so um, I pray for the congregation this morning as well, that they would uh, encourage, support, care for, and love these men well in the midst of their service so that as they render that service to us, and as they love us and care for us, that we would also love and care for them so that together, side by side, we may continue to grow and mature in Christ Jesus until we all reach maturity in the faith. Mm. And so we pray for your spirit to work powerfully in our midst, in and through these men and among us from this day going forward. We commit these things to you in the name of Jesus, for you alone can continue the work of building your church. We commit everything to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, you guys can stand up. I now pronounce and declare that Brandon Dykstra has been elected and installed as ruling elder of this church and that Brad Kendall and Chris Potts have been elected and installed as deacons in this church, agreeable to the word of God and according to the constitution of the PCA and that as such they are entitled to all encouragement, honor, and obedience in the Lord in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Congratulations, guys. Let's give them a hand. Uh, let's stand. We're going to sing in conclusion, the church is one foundation, and uh, while that's happening, elders, let's extend the right hand of fellowship to these men.